We've got to go back to Iconium, Lystra, and Derva, <laughs> Derby today, uh, these cities that are in Galatia. So we said last week that uh, when we're looking at these particular cities, we're talking about cities in the region of Galatia. Now later, Paul is going to write a book called Galatians. It's a really short, it's not a book, it's a letter, and it's a fiery letter. I mean, man, he, he, uh, he burns up the page uh, with molten words from heaven in that letter toward the Galatians because what is going on in that letter is sometime after he left this place ministering the gospel here, a group of men named the Judaizers, that he calls the uh, Judaizers, uh, they broke off from the church in Jerusalem. And these are Pharisees and priests who have become obedient to the Christian faith. But they have this really quirky belief. It's not just quirky, it's actually heretical. And that is that in order for a person to be a Christian, a person is not just a Christian by faith in Christ alone. A person is a Christian by faith in Christ adding the works of Torah. And so the works of Torah are really three categories of laws in the Old Testament. The first one would be circumcision laws. So the work of Torah would be circumcision. Uh, Paul mentions that in Galatia. He's saying circumcision is of no value to you because uh, you already have the Spirit. He also mentions Sabbath and new moon festivals in that book in Galatians. He's saying uh, that's of no value to you either uh, because Christ has fulfilled that as well. And uh, he also <clears throat> mentions their dietary laws. And so it is very critical for a Christian to understand that in order to uh, go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to go from being an unbeliever to a believer, you do not have to convert to Judaism and bear these marks, the marks of being a Jew in the first century. Now, in Galatians, he is responding to this, but we haven't got there yet. Right now, we're witnessing the planting of these very churches in this area, and they're in the, the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And so, now, I want you to think for just a second about how impossible it would have been for the Jews to convert to becoming a Christian. To hear the message from Barnabas and Paul that all is required of you is to believe, is your trusting loyalty to Jesus and all the accoutrements, right? All the stuff that you come to trust in, that stuff has been brought to its intended completion. As Paul says in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law, which means that Christ has brought it to its intended fulfillment and completion, right? So this would be a very difficult message as a Jew for you to hear. This will be very difficult for you to swallow because this is now a challenge to your very way of life. And it also as a Gentile, it would be very difficult for you to hear that God's Messiah, God's Lord and King, the King of kings and Lord of lords was crucified on a cross. That, that would be impossible. And so here we have Paul and Barnabas and this team proclaiming what is otherwise an, un an unbelievable message in these Galatian cities. And as we'll see, people are coming to faith in droves. The church is taking hold in these re regions, and it is nothing short of a miracle. First thing we see in the text is that gospel ministry goes forward with mixed results. Gospel ministry always goes forward, no matter where it goes, with mixed results. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, he says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together uh, to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke which means they spoke in such a way, that a great multitude, both of Jews and of Greeks, believed. 
But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there for a long time. So they didn't go anywhere. They stayed there as long as they possibly could and spoke boldly, boldly, courageously for the Lord who testified. Now God, when they spoke the message of the gospel, testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. Now what is the purpose of a sign and wonder? We'll get to that in a few minutes. What, are, what is its purpose? Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. So it was a real mixed bag here. The people of the city were divided, and some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made uh, by both G- Gentiles and Jews, now both of them together, the unbelievers, who are against Paul and his message, with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, and we'll pause right there. We'll pick up the rest of the story in point two. But notice that it says at the beginning of this paragraph that they spoke in such a way that a great multitude of the Jews and the Greeks believed. Paul preached the same message to the Jew that he preached to the Gentile. And he preached it in different ways. How did Paul preach? How did Paul speak? Well, actually, he tells us exactly how he spoke in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 He reminds them of how he came to them and presented the gospel to a bunch of non-believing Gentiles. How did Paul speak? Well, he tells us Paul preached with great humility and respect. Paul preached with great humility and respect. He says, when I came to you, uh, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. This is, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, these are three phrases that have been so misunderstood. I have heard sermons preached on these three phrases or these three sentences in this paragraph so wrongly because people have just tried to read them from our cultural perspective, not from their cultural perspective. When the Apostle Paul says that I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, he was not saying I did not come as an effective speaker. He was not saying that. And I'll show you that in a second. We'll get to that in a second, but look at verse 2. He says, I, did, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I've heard sermons on this passage where people will say, look, man, we just preach the gospel. We just preach Jesus crucified on the cross. That is not what he means right here. And if you don't believe that, go back and read the book of 1 Corinthians because they seem to know an awful lot more about spiritual gifts, about the nature of marriage relationships, about all kinds of stuff that Paul has to once again remind them of and correct them regarding. Okay, so when you hear the phrase Christ and Christ crucified, that's what's called a metalepsis, a metalepsis. A metalepsis is a rhetorical device that you use as a placeholder for the whole concept. So you use a, it's like a metonym. Uh, It's like a word that stands in for the whole concept. And so this gospel now, Christ and Christ crucified, is a way of saying the way of the cross, this cruciform message. It is Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again, and all the virtues and the value system that attends that gospel, all the things that I taught you when I was with you. And that's what it means. And also, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And so uh, there has been this assumption that Paul was just this sort of scared, uh, doe-eyed preacher who was terrified to preach in front of people. That is not what this phrase means. This is an idiom. In their culture, this was an idiom that means humility and respect. 
humility and respect. When the Old Testament Jew or the New Testament Jew says uh, with fear and trembling, they mean with humility and respect. That's exactly what they mean. Uh, So uh, you and I have these kinds of idioms as well. If I say, man, I am over the moon about Carrie Kennedy, I do not mean that I'm going to get in a rocket ship and travel over the moon for Carrie Kennedy. I mean that I'm absurdly, ridiculously in love with Carrie Kennedy, okay? If I say to you uh, that I am under the weather, well, what do you do? I tell you that your first instinct is not to look up and go, what? Is there a cloud over your head, rain over your head? No. That means I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. If I say to you, I'm sorry I stole your thunder, what am I saying to you? I'm, star- I'm sorry that I stole your idea. I'm sorry that I, that I took your place in the spotlight. So in fear and trembling is an idiom in the first century, and it means in humility with respect. That's what it means when they say it. Why does he call it weakness? Because the Greco-Romans don't think it's a strength. If you're in Corinth or you're in Galatia or you're a Greek or a Gentile and somebody comes to you and speaks with humility and respect to their opponents, those who oppose their ideas, their competitors, you think that's weakness because this is not the way good speakers speak in the ancient world. You speak boldly and you speak in such a way that you use insulting rhetoric. And Paul says this, I didn't use insulting rhetoric. That's the very next thing he says. He says, I didn't use insulting rhetoric. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling and humility with, and respectfully. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom. Now, the word persuasive can be used in two senses in the New Testament. The first sense is as Luke repeatedly uses it to describe Paul's preaching. In Acts 18.4, Luke says, and Paul spoke persuasively. So repeatedly, Luke describes his preaching and speaking as persuasive. Okay, now that word can mean to just uh, convince someone of the reasonableness of your case. That's all it means. To convince someone of the reasonableness of your case. To persuade them to believe or to consider what you're telling them. Now it can be used in another sense. In the New Testament, it also can be used as a form of insulting injurious rhetoric. So this word is used in some contexts in an analogy like Luke eleven twenty two. In Luke eleven, Jesus tells an analogy. He says, "There's a strong man, and the strong man owns a house. And if you're going to plunder the strong man's house, well, you need two things. You need a stronger man, and the stronger man has to bind the strong man. Then you can plunder his house. Now, whatever Jesus is saying there, whatever he is talking about, uh, this word plunder or bind the strong man and then plunder is the word persuasive. Now, he is not saying, Jesus in that context is not saying, you know, the stronger man should walk up to the strong man and say, hey, I want to I convince you of the reasonableness of my case, that I should have your stuff. No, he's talking about violence. He's talking about doing injury. He's talking about binding the strong man. That's what he's talking about. Okay, so this word can be used in two senses. It can mean to cause injury, uh, to cause violence, or persuade can mean to help a person arrive at the reasonableness of your case. And this is what Paul is talking about. Paul says, I didn't come with the kind of rhetoric uh, that would destroy or injure the character of the people who disagree with me. Now, there were three kinds of ancient rhetoric, three species of ancient rhetoric. The first kind was called deliberative rhetoric. 
And if you want to read about these, you can read about them in Quintilian. Quintilian sort of invented this, and the Greeks really liked this idea. There's what is called deliberative rhetoric. Now, that is a speech that you give, an argument that you have with someone. You do it respectfully. You do it with humility, but you try to convince them of the reasonableness of your case. Second kind of rhetoric was called forensic rhetoric. Forensic rhetoric. That's the kind of rhetoric you would use in a court of law where you would try to convince a judge of the reasonableness of your case. Okay, and the third kind of rhetoric was called epideictic rhetoric. That kind of rhetoric uh, was the public square oratory. And if you went to one of these Greek cities, what you would see are Greek rhetors lined up down the street uh, having debates with orators on the other side of the street and absolutely defaming their character. And so the purpose of this kind of persuasive uh, sort of ornamental rhetoric was for you to shame your opponent because in this world, honor and shame uh, is all the rage. And honor is a limited commodity. You can't have honor by just saying, I'm an honorable person. You get honor by shaming your competitor and then their honor is transferred to you. And so this is what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying I didn't come speaking persuasively. Of course he did. He came in humility and respect. He spoke persuasively. He reasoned with them about the case for Christ. But he said, I did not come to insult people who disagree with me. I didn't come to do that. The gospel of Jesus is never to be presented that way in derogatory speech toward the character of others. And Paul says he relied on a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This is not with kind of attacking persuasive words of wisdom, Sophia, that word is Sophia, it means sophistication, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, this kind of rhetoric, but based on God's power. Now, I want you, we said before, I want you to stop and think just how offensive the cross of Jesus was to both Jew and Greek. Now, if you were to say to a Jew in the first century, uh, your Messiah died on a cross, (laughs) They could not hear it. It was almost a psychological impossibility for them to hear that message. Because in Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Messiah, God's Messiah, God's son, was hung on a cross? No way. This would be a very difficult message for you to hear. Now, if you're a Greek, equally, if not more, difficult for you to hear. Because the cross is a symbol of public shame. The cross is the way that... Rome destroys you, not only kills you, but kills the memory of you from the face of the earth. So as a Gentile, for someone to say to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, was crucified on a Roman cross. No, that's a symbol of defeat, not a symbol of victory. So how could they believe this message? How could they possibly believe it? You see, we believe that the gospel, we believe in the gospel when it is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, signs and wonders followed Paul's preaching, no doubt. No doubt, signs and wonders, one is, we're going to look at one right here in this chapter, but signs and wonders followed his preaching to vindicate and validate the claims of the gospel. But let me tell you, there is no greater sign and wonder than a saved life. There is no greater miracle in the first century than a Jew and a Greek believing that their Messiah, their Savior, has been crucified on a Roman cross. That's the biggest miracle you could point to. And what Paul says, if you recall, when I came to you with this otherwise absurd message about the Messiah being crucified on a tree and resurrected, you believed it. 
You believed it. You believed it because the power of the Holy Spirit was present to awaken faith in your soul, to awaken faith in your heart. So what does it mean to be faithful to the gospel? Paul says, I I was faithful to the gospel. There is no success without faithfulness to the message of the cross. You see, if I have to water it down and make it a kind of milky pabulum for you to digest, if I have to do that, I've adulterated it. There's no success without preaching the gospel in all of its rawness, in all of its offense. And faithfulness will result in fruitfulness. It will result in bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. How do we bear fruit for the kingdom of God? We see the miracle, the spirit-empowered miracle of lives being changed by the message of the cross and the spirit. That, that, that is clearly how we are faithful and we're fruitful. But bearing fruit, being productive for God's kingdom happens on God's timetable. It doesn't happen according to ours. There are some people that I know and that I love and I want them to be saved right now. I want them to come to Christ this second. I don't want them to wait another day, another minute. But it happens on God's timetable. Acts 13, 48. Remember Acts 13, 48. Here's what Luke says. Here's here's his editorial comment about Iconium. He says, all who are appointed for eternal life believed. You see, it takes hard work the way Paul and Barnabas and their missions team did. It takes hard work to minister in the community and to tirelessly preach the gospel, to announce it, to share it in a way with humility and respectfully, right, to those whom God loves, whom God died for. Okay, it it takes a lot of hard work, but ultimately the work is God's. The work is God's because if it isn't on God's schedule, it's not going to happen. And there are two extremes here that we need to avoid. The first extreme is evangelistic apathy. Evangelistic apathy. We need to avoid the extreme of thinking, well, the sovereign God is going to save whoever he wants to save, so what does he need me for? Salvation is all of God, is it not? Of course it is. But God likes to use human image bearers. God likes to use people as instruments to proclaim the gospel the way he used Barnabas and Paul and this team in this city. And so we need to be careful that we're not leaning into evangelistic apathy. We also need to avoid the other extreme of evangelistic anxiety. I grew up in a church tradition where people were very anxious. And they believed, man, if the people didn't get saved because we didn't pray hard enough, we didn't work hard enough, we didn't do enough. No, if it's not on God's schedule, it's not going to happen. It takes work. And God uses human instruments in the gospel going out in the world. I don't know why he chose to do that, but he does. It's, I don't know why that's plan A. It really shouldn't be, <laughs> right? Like we, I mean, we really shouldn't be plan A. But God, in his wisdom, has chosen to use us. Human instruments, human agents, human vessels. And he has chosen to do that. And so we need to avoid apathy, just not sharing the gospel because we think, well, if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. And evangelistic anxiety, thinking, well, everything is up to me. If I don't share it just right, they're not going to get saved. And so all of that takes hard work and intentionality. And at the end of the day, we trust God's sovereign appointments. We rely on his timing. Paul and Barnabas experienced both success and setbacks in their mission. And this is just the way it is. (laughs) 
This is just the way gospel ministry is. Some people receive it, and some people don't. Half the crowd believes, half the crowd is asleep, doesn't care. So not everyone we share the good news with will think that it's good news. Number two, the cities of Lystra and Derby. So then they go to the cities of Lystra Derby, Derby, and here's what we see. It is human nature to attribute God's work to false gods, right? It's, I, I should say it's fallen human nature. Look at verses 6 through 10. It says they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian like, um, towns of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding countryside. And then they, they continued preaching the gospel. So they found out they were going to be the targets of severe persecution here, probably killed. So they fled to Lystra and Derby. And then there they continued preaching the gospel, boldly, of course. Now in Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet. He was disabled, and he had never walked. He had been lame from birth. I think we get the point. Thank you, Luke. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. (laughs) And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. (laughs) So they interpreted uh, Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes. And then the priest of Zeus, whose uh, temple was in front of their city, uh, brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes to Paul and Barnabas. Can you imagine this? As Paul preached the good news of salvation to Jesus, now he discerns supernaturally. This is a supernatural gift of discernment. He discerns spiritually that there is a man who is laying in the floor and this guy cannot walk and everybody knows it, right? Why does God love these uh, paralyzed men who've been paralyzed from birth? Because everybody knows them. Everybody knows they're not faking. When they get up, it's not psychosomatic. It is a supernatural act of God to validate the gospel message. And Paul sees his faith and he calls out in a loud, the, the scripture says, a loud command. Stand up. In the name of Jesus, stand up. And the man does, and he starts walking around, and everybody's like, oh, get the garland. I'm like, go get the priests. And the Lystrans attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. Now, Paul and Barnabas do not at first realize what they're doing. Why? <laughs> because they're speaking in their native Lyconian language. They're not speaking in Greek. They, they don't understand what, what the fervor is for. They think they're about to reap the harvest here for the gospel, and these people run off and go get the priests of this false god, these false god's temple, and at some point they come to realize, oh, they're trying to sacrifice to us. And everybody in this region knew the same myth. They believed it deeply. They believed it deeply. And that about a thousand years before this, they believed that Zeus and Hermes had showed up and introduced themselves to the Lyconians in human form. Now, if you're a Greek, this is not a problem for you. The Greeks taught all the time in their literature that the gods incarnate themselves. So the incarnation of Jesus... Like that part of the gospel message, not a problem for Greeks, okay? This is not a problem for them. And so in their tradition, Zeus and Hermes came in disguise. And all but one couple, but one couple, it's Bousy and uh, Philemon, a couple named Bousy and Philemon, uh, all but one couple 
rejected them. Bassi and Philemon actually showed them hospitality. And so the myth was they destroyed everyone else with a gigantic flood, right? They just sent a huge flood and destroyed them. And what you need to know is that the first century Jews believed that this very territory is where Mount Ararat was and where Noah's uh, ark had taken place or landed. And so uh, what happened was the Jews had moved here a long time ago, and they very much influenced the Greeks in terms of their flood uh, story, and they invented their own flood story. And what they did is they took the Jewish flood story from Genesis chapter 6 or whatnot, and they took that and they turned it into their own cultural story. And so it was Zeus and Hermes who came down and cursed the people. He cursed them because of their failure to be hospitable. Now, the legend was, if they ever came back, that the people should show them hospitality and worship them. And now this is just what they're doing. What they're doing is they're trying to make up for their ancestors. They're trying to right this wrong. And so immediately they interpret these men as gods, but they are just tragically wrong about the whole thing. And what do they do? They interpret what God is doing through the grid of their own experience. And folks, this is just human nature. It is just human nature to interpret what God is doing through our own belief system and not to really hear the message that God is trying to get through to us. And so they have attributed the acts of God to false gods, and this is, this is common. This is just fallen human nature. Number three, godly leaders point people's affections back to Christ. Godly leaders point people's affections back to Jesus. Verse 14, it says, The apostles uh, Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this, and they rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are people also, just like you. We are proclaiming good news to you that, that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God, please. This God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them in past generations the nations were allowed, or he allowed the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness. He's talking about the witness of creation, the glory of God in creation. And since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy, even though they said these things, they could barely keep the crowds from sacrificing to them. Notice what the apostles do when they, when they are interpreted as gods, as deities. Well, this isn't an inconvenience. They're not flattered. They do not, they do not uh, entertain the idea that someone is going to worship them for one half of a second. They do what a Jew does, tear their robes instinctively. They just rip their garments and cry out, no, no. This is what a, a first century Jew does when they hear heresy. Remember what Caiaphas did at Jesus' trial. What did Jesus claim? They're like, tell us. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the living God? And what does Jesus do? He quotes Daniel chapter 7, okay, which they all know. He quotes Daniel chapter 7, which depicts the Son of Man acceding to the throne of heaven in a cloud, receiving all glory and power and worship of the nations, <laughs> and then returning in power. And so Jesus quotes that passage, and what does Caiaphas do? No! He rips the holiest part of his garment and says, do we need to hear any other testimony? And orders him struck across the face. When you hear blasphemy as a Jew, this is what you do. 
And so these people have now attributed to Paul and Barnabas things that only belong to God. And they're not flattered by this. They do not entertain the idea that they will be exalted or glorified, not even for a half second, before they plead with the people, do not worship us as gods. Do not respond that way. So I want to tell you what false gods will do for you and what they won't. False gods always fail you. The gods we worship who are not God, they always fail us. The only one worthy of our worship is the one true God of heaven. False gods always fail you because they were not designed. The thing that we're worshiping was not designed to have that glory. It was not designed to receive glory. It was only designed to reflect it. Like the moon reflects the light of the sun. It doesn't produce it on its own. You and I were designed to reflect the glory of God, not to receive God's glory. So false gods, no matter what you worship, doesn't matter what it is, will always fail you. False gods will always turn on you. False gods will always turn on you. If you zig when you should have zagged, they will send you a flood. They will send you a fire. They'll burn your house down. A false god, something that we worship, will always let us down because they can't actually do. Not only were they not designed to receive glory, those false gods cannot do for you what you think they can do. They just can't. Because only God can do what he says he can do. And idolatry will always distort God's image in you. It always has an effect. There's an effective component here. Would we idolize something and replace God with it and we worship that thing? No matter what it is, sex or money or power or relationships or no matter what that false idol is, when we exalt it and put it on God's throne, it will always produce in us a false image. Because we become, listen, you become the thing that you worship. That's, you become like the thing that you worship. And so false idols, idolatry, will always distort God's image in you. And idolatry will always drag your soul to hell. Will drag your soul to hell. What Paul says here in Romans 1, 29 and 32, says they, the human race, us, We were filled with all unrighteousness and evil and greed and wickedness. Now this, he starts that passage out in verse 18 by telling us this is is what idolatry is. This is what it does. This is what it produces. Now this is the end of that passage. We have spiraled all the way down to talk about this is what it produces. Produces a person who is morally depraved and judged He says they are filled, those idolaters are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. He says they're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful. They literally invent ways of doing evil, and they're disobedient to parents. Kids, underline that passage. Notice the company (laughs) that dishonoring your mother and father is in. And he says they're senseless. That word literally means stupid. They're senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, deserve to die. They not only do them, but they even applaud those who practice them. Folks, we live in a culture right now where good is called evil and evil is called good, and then when people virtue signal and say, yes, I affirm, I embrace the evil, They're applauded for doing that. And this is where idolatry leads us. Idolatry leads us to moral depravity. 
Idolatry pulls us away from the image of God in Christ, Christ who is the expressed image of God, we who are being formed into the image of Christ, and it drags us away from the image of Christ, and it makes us look not like God. And it produces in us all kinds of ungodliness. So this is Paul and Barnabas' motivation. And what he says here is this is a just sentence. This wrath that God has poured out on you, this is a just sentence. All those who do this deserve to die. That's the reason why we need salvation. We need salvation because there's something to be saved from. And so Paul and Barnabas want to save these people from this worthless idolatry. And the Lystrans are directing the honor and glory that is due God alone to men. And then false idol worshipers are fickle. Notice how fickle and non-committal the idol worshipers are. Verse 19, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Well, that's different. After the disciples gathered around them, he got up and, and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. What happens? You see, false idols will always fail you and turn on you because they can't produce in you what only God can produce in you, his image. And all the blessings that come with being an image bearer and, and walking in that vocation, idolatry cannot do any of that for you. But then what happens is the people kill their gods. Where is the Roman pantheon? Where's the Greek pantheon? Eventually, the people killed them. <laughs> Eventually, the people rose up and said, we don't believe this anymore. We're not going to sacrifice to these gods anymore. You see, no one is more fickle than a false worshiper of a false idol. And just look at what is happening in our culture today with cancel culture. Look at what happens every single year to celebrities. Now, you and I live in a celebrity worship culture. We just do. We live in a celebrity worship culture, and every year, a slew, a whole group of people get canceled by their, by their worshipers. Now, I'm just going to mention three from last year. I could mention a dozen or more. How about Leah Michelle? Leah Michelle was an actress known for her role on the show Glee. It was a show that promoted the LGBTQ agenda regularly, and she tweeted out regularly her stance her approval of that agenda. And she also began to tweet out her approval of the Black Lives Matters cause. And her co-stars rose up and canceled her because eight years earlier, she said something she shouldn't have said when they were not on camera. They're, they're, the followers canceled her. What about Saya? Have you heard of Saya? Is it Saya? Is it pronounced Saya? This, this pop star and... This young girl who she has this weird shtick, this weird act where uh, she has these long bangs in front of her face, uh, and you can't see her face. So for like the first couple of years she was making albums, these pop albums, no one knew what she looked like. That was just her thing, right? And so this young girl turned into a movie producer, and she produced a movie about the autism spectrum, and it was critically well-received. But her fans canceled her. They knocked her off of her pedestal because she had the audacity to cast an actor in the role of an autistic person rather than a real autistic person. So she got canceled, and now she's canceled. <laughs> what about Ellen DeGeneres? Ellen DeGeneres. For 15 years, DeGeneres has been the poster child for social wokeness. 
after she came out famously as a lesbian. And now she's been canceled because some of the same worshipers that put her on that idol pedestal uh, have come to realize, and, and it has come out, that she's really mean. Imagine that. A false god who's a tyrant. This is what happens, folks. What happens is when we worship idols, they cannot do for us what we think they can do. And we transfer God's glory and the worship that is due him alone to these false gods, no matter who they are. No matter who they are. And then what happens is we kill the gods. We kill them because they can't produce in us what they say they can. And so the list goes on. No one is more cruel to the gods, the false idols, than their worshipers. And just look at the culture of Christian celebrities that we have today, if I may bring this home, who were exalted as little godlings by an idolatrous Christian celebrity worship culture. And now that same, those same men and women have proven to be human beings, sinners saved by grace like you and me. And when they have fallen, they got canceled. And people have written endless blogs and recorded podcasts, endless podcasting about them. What a shocker. We made gods out of these pastors or these Christian celebrities, and then when they fell, they turned out not to, do, not to be able to do what, what they said they could do or what we thought they could do. So here's the application today. We are to embody the humility, respect, and the power of the gospel message. As Christians, we are to embody the humility, the respect, and the power of the gospel message. The gospel is powerful because it is a reasonable gospel, because we can make a reasonable, persuasive case for it, but that gospel is accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit to set the captive free. And God, in his timing, will set captives free. And number two, we are to resist the destructive idolatry of our culture. One of the ways that I do this personally is I, I never only listen to the same person, right? So I, I went back and I counted. I have about seven scholars or pastors or scholarly pastors that I listen to on a regular basis, and those pastors and scholars do not all agree on the finer points. And I listen to them because I want to hear these great minds for the Lord in conversation with each other. Never get addicted to one person's voice. Never. Don't ever become addicted to my voice alone. You need other perspectives. So we resist the destructive power of idolatry that is really permeated in our culture today. And that we worship the one true God who created us, gave us everything, and has graced us with his only son. Notice what Paul says here. He draws a line. He draws a contrast. He says, this God, your, your gods are worthless, and we're trying to persuade you away from these things, but this God that I'm talking about who sent Christ has provided everything for you. He's provided all the things that you have needed to enjoy life. He's a good God. Worship him alone. Worship him alone. And we're going to do that right now as we take communion. I'm going to call the worship team back up and ask our ushers to prepare the elements this morning. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to think through a couple of things. First of all, if there is a rift between you and another believer, because Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that that is what it means to take unworthily, 
to have a person in your life that you refuse to reconcile with, as far as it is up to you, be reconciled. And if you refuse to do that, you take unworthily. Do not take communion if that is your heart, if your heart is not for reconciliation. And number two, if there's any area of sin in your life that you need to confess to the Lord, this is the time to do it. And this is the time as we take communion not to look pious or to appear to be uh, especially devout or super religious. This is the time to get it all out, to confess it. And number three, to thank God, to thank God for the goodness, for the gifts that he has given us, particularly the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for giving us all things. And you prove that you are the true God. You prove that you're the one true God as, as we sit around this table and we reflect on this impossible thing that you have done and allowed your son to be crucified on our behalf for our sins. So Lord, as we take these elements, we reflect on what you have done, the goodness, the gifts of mercy that you have given us. Amen. Thank you.